Proverbs 11. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this evening. 1 through 5. Proverbs 11, verse 1. The Bible says, A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. When pride cometh, then cometh shame, but with the lowly is wisdom. The integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. Let's pray again. Our Father, we thank you for this time together tonight in the Word. Thank you for the songs that were sung, Lord. Thank you for the service this morning. What a a time we had, Lord, in prayer and in the Word. And we just now implore you, Lord. We have several who are out sick. Again, we ask your blessings upon their health. I think of Maisha, Terry, and Gloria, Olivia, that you would touch each one of them, Lord, that you would heal them quickly and uh, return them to our fellowship. And Lord, bless our time now together in the Word. May it be profitable. And may your Spirit uh, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We move, as we move into this chapter, we're going to see a heavy emphasis on the benefits of righteousness. I was trying to take a bigger chunk of the chapter tonight, but I feel like there's a lot to talk about. And I don't want to kind of overwhelm uh, how much information we're taking in tonight. With the benefits of righteousness, we're also going to see the, what's the word, consequences of wickedness. There are benefits to godliness and there are consequences to wickedness. Let's start in verse 1. A false balance is abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. The reference to this verse is to deceit in commerce specifically, right? This is marketplace stuff in ancient Israel. You would weigh in things and you would uh, base prices based on, on weights and people would cheat one another. You, can you believe that? People would cheat one another. They would try to rip each other off. They would... Try to have a, 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 a heavier weight over here to counterbalance, to get more money for what they were selling. We see the same thing today, don't we? I've told you before, I, 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 I hesitate as a person, I hesitate to hire Christians to work for me. Because I've known so many Christians who are all about the money. And they're dishonest. And they're disreputable because they want more money. And they hurt, in my opinion, the name of Christ. Because when I see someone with a fish or a cross on their ad, I'm not going to call them. I don't trust them. And I'm a Christian. But I've known so many. Deception is an abomination to the Lord. Commerce is specifically here, but let's just talk about deception for a minute. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to deceive people. Right? Yes. God hates that. We need to understand. We need to get a hold of this. Hey, what you share on social media, make sure it's true. Because God hates sharing lies as much as speaking lies. We have a responsibility as Christians to be honest 
and upfront with people. Say, well, my friends shared it. So if they're not Christians, they don't have that responsibility. You have a responsibility before God to be honest. Make sure everything you say and do is honest. Be a person of your word. That used to be the norm in society, right? The gentleman's handshake, just man of your word. That's not the norm in society today. It should be for Christians. People should look at you and say, oh, you're a Christian? And they should think, okay, you're going to be honest with me. You're going to be upfront with me. God hates lying and deceit. Go to Deuteronomy 25, 13. Deuteronomy 35, 25, 13. We'll get into the law here. Uh, weights and measures. In Deuteronomy 25, 13. The Bible says, Thou shalt not have in thy bag diverse weights, a great and a small. In other words, be honest. Be honest. Go to Leviticus 19.35. Leviticus 19.35. Leviticus 19.35. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment... In yard, that's length, in weight, or in measure, just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin shall ye have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And I love how he packs it on the end of it, right? I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land. What was the land of Egypt to them? Slavery. Abuse. Right? In other words, don't be like where you came from. Don't abuse people. Don't deceive people. Don't use people. We see it over and over again in the uh, Old Testament when he's commanding them the, 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 the laws of the land of Israel. He always says, don't do like the people that were in the land before you. Don't act that way. They were commanded not to rob others through deceit or dishonesty. They were to be good citizens. By the way, Christians are commanded to be good citizens. Do we understand that? Now, there are times to disobey the government. Is there not? There are times. The government has no power to shut down the church. None. They have no power over the church of God. Uh, they have no right to say, remember a couple of years ago, you can meet, but you can't sing. They have no authority to do that. They have no authority to tell us how to worship, how to serve God. But they do have their sphere of responsibility. Remember they came to Jesus with the, the tax? And they said, oh, we're commanded to give taxes to Caesar. What do you say? He had that profound answer, whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. Then give to Caesar that which is Caesar and God, the things that are God's. What image was on the coin? Caesar's. Give Caesar his image. Whose image are we made in? God. Give yourself to God. He owns you. Give Caesar that coin, but God owns you. 
And within the realm of Caesar or government's responsibility, we are to be good citizens. You understand that? Whether we like it or not, we are to obey the law. There is a line. Because we're to obey God rather than men. But as long as the lines between Caesar's rule and God's rule don't mix, we're to be upstanding citizens. We're not to overthrow the government. We're not to be extremists. We're not to blow things up. Okay? I was taught as a kid we're to use the crosswalk. We're, we're, we're to put our carts back and we're done with them at the grocery store. Be a good citizen. That's what a Christian should do. That's what they were commanded in the Old Testament. Be a good citizen. People should look at the way we live and the way we conduct ourselves in society and we should have a testimony about us that the world doesn't have. We should have consideration for others. Go back to Proverbs 11. He says, just wait is his delight. God delights in honest and moral dealings. So be honest. Be upright. Don't, don't lie. Don't steal. I know Christian businessmen who, who pad the numbers to give themselves just a little bit more. What do they say? Oh, it's fine. We're going to give more offering off of it. Don't use the Lord as an excuse to do wickedness. We are not to be dishonest. I had a pastor once. You guys know my book coming out? I had a pastor once. He was as dishonest as they came. And uh, he wanted to remodel his house. So he got this bright idea. Let's remodel the church. And he always bought just a little too much. A little too much paint. A little too much flooring. Just enough, though, to fill his house up, remodel his house. I'm not against a church paying for their pastor's house to be remodeled. I'm against a pastor deceiving the church to get them to pay for his house to be remodeled without them knowing about it. That's the Lord's money. You understand that? He's stealing from the Lord's house to remodel his house. And I'm sure the church would have gladly, they had the money, they would have gladly paid for it. But he decided, and, and, and some of us begin to know this, we keep overbuying, and it's just enough for the pastor's house. He spent $10,000 of the church's money by deceit. That should not be our Christian testimony. It's an abomination for us to steal or to deceive others. Verse 2, when pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly is wisdom. We have here a great contrast between pride and humility. The term lowly is a reference to the humble or lowly of heart and mind. Uh, pride is such a dangerous sin, isn't it? It is. It's deadly. Pride is deadly. It led to Satan's downfall. Turn to Isaiah 14. We're going to turn to a couple places here. Isaiah 14. Verse 12. 
How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which is weak of the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Wow. What a prideful statement. I will be like the Most High. This puffed him up, didn't it? We're kind of taught that pride is a good thing today. We've got to be careful of that. I mean, context is key, I guess, but, you know, I was raised with a proud to be an American slogan. I think I've learned to switch that to I'm thankful to be an American. Thankful God put me here. But pride is something we need to watch out for. Pride is so easy to sneak in. It's so tempting to think highly of ourselves. It's so... It's, it's dangerous. I'm so prone to it. It fed me when I was an unsaved youth group member preaching. Should never been preaching. But boy, it fed me, didn't it? To hear, oh boy, what a great sermon. What a great young man. He's going places. Oh my goodness. Listen, listen. So eloquent. So good. So, what do you, what do you think they did to my ego? Brought <laughs> it straight out. It's so easy. It's so tempting for us to think highly of ourselves, isn't it? But don't coddle pride in the heart. It destroys. Destroyed the angel. Go to Genesis chapter 3. It led to the fall. Genesis 3. Pride led to the first sin. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. What a tempting thought, isn't it? And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Pride is not just in wanting, pride is not just in what we have, it's wanting what we don't have sometimes. Eve heard that, she goes, hmm, I could be like God. That's tempting. I would like that. I like what Doug Wilson says. He says that God would have eventually given them the knowledge of good and evil. And that Eve's sin was wanting something before God had given it to them. There's a lot of pride in that. How about Abraham and Sarah, right? God promised them a son, they got impatient. 
I can take care of this. <laughs> Just marry my handmaid, then we'll have a son. There's pride in that. To step into God's place and say, hmm, we can handle this. We can do this ourselves. Pride is destructive, church. Remember what we talked about last week? Think about others as better than yourselves. That's the anti-pride right there. We are to lift others up. Why is there strife in the church? Because we think we're better than we are. Because we feel entitled. Well, he doesn't know who he's talking to. I've been here for 25 years. That's pride. Or how about, who does he think he's talking to? I'm the pastor around here. That's pride. Pride. Kill pride or it's going to kill you. I'm telling you, church. Every, only by pride, the Bible says, come with contention. Every fight is pride. Every church split is pride. Every war in the world is pride. Every broken marriage is pride. You understand that? Pride. Eve thought to herself how great it would be to know what God knows. There's pride in that desire. Run from pride. Kill it before it destroys you, and it will. If pride can bring down a holy angel, then you and I are not safe. Don't think more of yourself than you ought to think. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 5, God resists the proud. Did you catch that? You and I can't walk with God and be prideful. He resists the proud. Well, I want to draw near to God, then kill your pride. Humble yourself. He dwells in the high holy place with him who is of a contrite heart and a humble spirit. That's what Isaiah says. We cannot think much of ourselves and make much of Christ at the same time. You understand that? It's so easy. It's so easy to think that God needs us. He doesn't need us. He can do it all himself. Especially our church, right? We're a church full of street preachers. You know how prideful street preachers can be? Uh, I'm calling us into question now. God doesn't need us. He wants to use us. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need this church. He doesn't need any church. You realize he can reach the South Bay with the gospel without us? You realize you and I add nothing to God that he doesn't already have within himself? And if that's the truth, then who are we to puff ourselves up? I mentioned, I think it was last Sunday morning, I mentioned, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. The lowest place of service in that society, he washed their feet. He deserved to be worshipped by them. He washed their feet. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not Robert to be equal with God. You understand that? Made himself of no reputation. Took upon him the form of a servant. If he who is God became a servant, then we who are servants have no right to lift our heads and go, hmm, look at how good we are. <laughs> how talented we are. You realize that. 
you realize God doesn't need me here. Right? If I get prideful, he could give me a heart attack in my sleep and put a new man in, my, in this pulpit next week if he wanted to. He doesn't need me. I don't add anything to him. He doesn't look at this church and go, oh boy, I'm so glad I put him there because, boy, I, no. Any, any trained monkey can do what I do. Let's just be honest. I'm not irreplaceable. Who am I to lift myself up and think much of myself? The same for you. Listen, people have come and gone from this church over the last almost 100 years. We're here now. One day we'll all be gone, dead. Lord willing, others will be sitting here in these seats. You know what it tells me? We're expendable. The church of Christ goes on. Kill pride before it destroys you. We all know people who have been here or been Christians or been in church and maybe a different church with us and they've walked away from the Lord. It's pride. It's pride that does that. You've got to resist the proud. You cannot walk with God and hold a proud heart. Go back to our text. Proverbs 11. Pride brings shame because it leads to destruction. With the lowly or humble is wisdom. Or you could say, with the lowly or hum humble is the wisdom of God. The proud will never get the wisdom of God. They don't need it. They know everything. God's wisdom is not for the humble, it's for the, or for the, not for the proud, it's for the humble. It's for those who lower themselves and learn from the Savior. Peter says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 3, the integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. The integrity of the upright would be a reference to someone walking in faithful obedience to the law of God. This will guide them. Faithful obedience to God's law is a guide. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. You want to walk the right path? Walk in humble obedience to God's word. That's, that's, that's how you do it. That's how you stay. I had somebody ask me this week, I had lunch with somebody, and they asked me, said, Pastor, how do you stay faithful to the Lord year after year? I said, well, it's every day, getting out of bed and saying, I'm a Christian. And I read the Bible. And then I apply what I read. And that lights my path every day. I just get up and do the same thing. I had a pastor once that said, this is not a bad pastor once story. I had a pastor once, they asked him, how, how do you stay married for so long? You've been married like 40 years. And he says, it's easy. You just put up and put up and put up and put up. What does that mean? It means you get out of bed and you put up with the trials of the day and you put up with each fight and you put up with each disagreement and you put up with each eccentricity and, and when you guys are in bad mood, you put up with each other and you just keep putting up and putting up and putting up every day. Being a Christian is much the same way. 
You just get up every day and say, I'm a Christian. And you do the same things. You don't always feel like a Christian. I, you, I told you guys, you don't always feel like a Christian. I don't always feel like serving God. But I do. I'm not saying fake it, pretend. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, if our, if our marriages depend on how well we get along, we'd all be divorced, wouldn't we? Because <laughs> fights come up. We're different people. Except for my wife and I, we're perfect. Oh, why is she shaking her head? No. As I said, 90% of our fights are over Uno. But anyways. No, we're different people. We're going to have disagreements. If our Christianity depended on our feelings, <laughs> we'd come and go, wouldn't we? Probably go more than we came. Christianity isn't about do we feel it today. We've set our love on Christ. And every day we get up and we love him again. And we obey him again. We don't always feel like it. But it's the right thing to do. Just keep walking. The word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. We talked about this morning in Proverbs. The book of the law, not departing out of your mouth. Meditating day and night. Then you'll make your way prosperous and you'll have good success. Christian, you want to go on being a Christian year after year? Stay in the Word of God. Stay in the Word of God. We live in a time of great deception and great wickedness in our country and in our culture and great upheaval all around us. How do you guide what's right and what's wrong? The Bible. You go back to what saith the Scripture. And if the Scripture says it, that's where we stand. Why don't I do certain things? What saith the scripture? Why do I do certain things? What saith the scripture? Listen, if we're not founded upon the word of God, we are going to crumble and fall. Because everything else is sinking sand. The only firm foundation is what has God said? Because that never changes. Culture changes. And so fast, too. I was listening to a podcast the other day from a TV show 10 years ago, I think, 12 years ago. And things have changed so much. One of the actors is talking about the show, and he goes, I need to start off the show by apologizing for all of our jokes back then, how hurtful they were to this group of people and this group of people. And I think myself, he spent like 10 minutes apologizing. That was just 12 years ago. Things have changed so much, he has to apologize for everything. Don't build your life on a culture that changes constantly. What does the scripture say? Before you watch it, what does the scripture say? Before you listen to it, what does the scripture say? Before you do it, what, how do I handle this problem at work? What does the scripture say? I talked to someone just the other week. He said, said uh, Pastor, what should I do about this? I said, what does the scripture say? It says to do this. Then why are you asking me? Do what, do, are you thinking I'm going to say something different? Do what the scripture says. How do you continue the Christian life? Every day you get up and you do what the scripture says. Obedience. Obedience. It's so easy, it's so difficult for us, isn't it? 
Walking in obedience to God's word will keep you from the path of ruin and destruction. Verse 4. Riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. What a statement. So many people give their lives for the wealth of this world, don't they? I mean, think about it. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, Paul said. How many today have done that? Have abandoned Christ to build a better life in this world? I remember a pastor, not a pastor of mine, but a pastor friend. His son left the faith and got this really high-paying job and made, you know, six digits a year. Six figures, you guys were. Six figures a year. I knew it didn't sound right. And the grandkids would go visit the grandpa, who was the pastor. they go to church. One day they asked their dad, why don't we go to church? He goes, well, if we went to church, we couldn't afford our boat. And the house with the playground. And the really cool car that we have. You know, those kids, they're all grown up now. And what they live their lives for? Money, boats, cars. He knows the way of truth. But this world, boy, calls to him. They find their security and their wealth. Listen, I'll do nothing for you on the day of judgment. Nothing for you on the day of judgment. It won't even save you in the case of national emergencies. Ezekiel 7.19 says, They cast their silver in the streets, and their gold shall be removed. Their silver and their gold shall not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They shall not satisfy their souls, neither fill their bowels, because it is the stumbling block of their iniquity. Ezekiel is speaking of the judgment of Israel who was being carried away into Babylon. Their riches, their wealth, and their glory couldn't protect them from God's judgment. Riches are so fleeting, they make a poor shelter, don't they? And they make a worse savior. When the American stock market crashed in the 1920s, millions of Americans were instantly homeless, starving, weren't they? People who just hours before were comfortable middle-class Americans were now destitute and in food lines. You know why? Because money is a terrible savior. It comes and it goes. It comes and it goes. They trusted their wealth and their comfort. They thought they were untouchable. And soon they learned they weren't secure. Let's bring it closer to time. How about 2007? The economic downturn we had then. I remember a guy I knew who was trying to retire and lost a good chunk of his 401k. He had to keep working like 10 more years. You know why? He'd been socking away all this money thinking this is going to last, this is going to last, this is going to last. And in one moment it was all gone. Houses were foreclosed on. The housing bubble burst. People were homeless. People lost everything. They had banked on their money, their line of credit lasting. And it didn't. It didn't. People jumped out of windows, committed suicide, because they had lost everything. Because they had put everything into their wealth and their comfort in this world. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to be rich. It's wrong to trust in that, though. 
to find shelter and safety and comfort in that. We don't find shelter and comfort anywhere but Christ, church. Anywhere but Christ. The richest people on earth will stand before God as paupers. Everything they find, their comfort and security in here will be left behind. And they'll stand before God with empty hands. It's happened before. Look at Hollywood. Just, what is it, 25 minutes from here with no traffic in Beverly Hills? Mansion after mansion after mansion owned by famous people at one time. They're all dead now. Somebody else lives in their house. They don't own anything. They have no comforts in this world anymore. Their money is gone. Their bank account's gone. And many of them, their fame is gone. New generations have risen up and don't even know who they are anymore. This world is so temporary. It's so fleeting. At best, you're remembered for a short time. Maybe my kids will go to my grave and visit it. Perhaps their kids. But by the time their kids are coming around, I'll be long forgotten. I go visit my mother's grave. And my kids might, when I'm gone, they might go visit it. But their kids won't. I still visit my mother's parents' graves. But they won't. They, don't, they didn't know them. When I'm gone, nobody will. Do you see how quickly we're forgotten? How quickly we are, our entire legacy becomes a name on a stone slab that nobody goes by to see anymore because nobody knows you existed? And we're storing up wealth and finding security in this world. Matthew 16, 26. What has a man profited to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Many are exchanging eternity for the temporal wealth of this world. This world's passing away, church. First Timothy 6, 17 says, Charge them that are rich in this world. They be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Don't trust in your wealth. Trust in God. Trust in God. That verse says it all. It doesn't have the uncertainty of riches. Don't trust the uncertainty of wealth. Trust in the certain, unchanging God. He never changes. He's always there. He's always the same. Our text says riches will not help in the day of judgment. God will not be bribed. You understand that? God will not be bribed on the day of judgment. Oh, they'll try. I heard Bill Gates is leaving his fortune to charity when he dies. Probably a, an attempt. If there is a God, he'll look on me kindly because I left billions of dollars to orphans. No, he won't. No, he won't. He'll see you as a lawbreaker who's defied his holy law, sinned against his holy name, if you're outside of Christ, you will perish. I don't care how much you leave to orphans. I don't care how much philanthropy you do in this world. God will not be bribed. Righteousness, that delivers from death. Righteousness is what we need. Not wealth. Not notoriety. Righteousness. 
Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Christ has covered us with a robe of righteousness. Israel cried out in Isaiah 61, all our garments are like filthy rags. But Christ has clothed us with the garments of righteousness. There was a song I was going to have Amy sing for you, but she doesn't like to sing in public. Beautiful song. It's actually called The Beautiful Robe. This verse makes me, I was going to put it in my notes, decided not to, but I know it by heart. I'll sing it, I'm just kidding. But the song says, I received the invitation to the banquet of the Lord. But I could never stand before him, his beauty I could not afford. For I looked down at my garments that were soiled and stained by sin, and I knew that in his sacred presence I could never enter in. Then my kind and loving Savior heard my cry of deep despair, and he said, I'll give unto you my own robes to wear. You can rest within this promise that the Father will be pleased on the day you stand before him in my own garment. He sees, Jesus gave me a beautiful robe to wear, Love beyond all measure, his garment to share. Spotless and holy, beauty far beyond compare. For Jesus gave me his own robe to wear. So he's done for us, church. He's clothed us in his own robe of righteousness. Wealth will not help in the day of wrath. But righteousness, it delivers from judgment. It delivers from wrath. God is not impressed at rich people who stand before him at the judgment. He is impressed only with those who are clothed in the righteousness of his son. Make sure that's you. Verse 5, the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his path, his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. When he says the righteousness of the perfect, that word perfect means blameless, Okay. We need to understand that within a gospel context that both his righteousness and blamelessness is not his own, but given to him by Christ through the redemption found in the gospel. Remember, I just talked about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Remember in Revelation, it talks about the, the white robes being given to them, and the robes are the righteousness of the saints. That's not teaching a work salvation, Right? That's not like, okay, so the saints were righteous, and so now they're clothed in robes of their own righteousness. That is imputed righteousness from Christ. And that imputed righteousness does produce in those who receive it experiential righteousness, right? We do righteousness as Christians because God is working in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Because he's doing the work in us, and that produces the fruit of righteous living. But when it says, I'm in the wrong chapter, when it says, the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way, this righteousness is not from us, it's from God. And our blamelessness is not because of us, because of God. Follow with me here. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Let me show you this from Scripture.
Romans 3, 9. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they, speaking of the Jews, against the Gentiles? Are we better than them? No, and no wise, for we have proved before both Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, and with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who's he describing here? Everyone. Both Jew and Gentile, everyone is under sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. Nobody has righteousness of their own. Nobody. We go back to Isaiah's vision of Christ in Isaiah chapter 6, right? He had a vision of the holiness of God. Isaiah was a righteous man. Like the Bible points out the sins of a lot of its characters. Like David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. But there's a few, you never see their sins mentioned. Like Daniel, Abel, Isaiah. You never see Isaiah's sins called out. He was presumably a pretty righteous person who when he came face to face with the holiness of the exalted Christ, said, I'm undone. I'm unclean. I shouldn't be here right now. He saw them crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he said, I'm not holy at all. None are righteous. If none do good, then none can have their own righteousness. How then can a man be righteous? The gospel answer is, of course, the righteousness of Christ. Look at verse 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Oh, pastor, the law is just for the Jews. Really? Then how can the whole world become guilty before God? We're all under God's law. Everybody. Everybody who walks this earth is accountable to the law of God. The moral law. That law which is defined by God's nature. You understand that, right? Sin is sin because sin is a violation of the nature of God. That's what makes sin, sin. Now we know that what things over the law say, they say then who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. The law was given to shut our mouths and take away our excuse before God. You ever hear people say, well, when I stand before God, I'm going to tell him this and this, and I'm going to ask him about this and this. No, you're not. Every mouth will be stopped in that day. That's what the law does. It stops our mouth. And all the world may become guilty before God. That is to recognize our guilt before God. Verse 20. Therefore, okay, so the law was given to stop our mouths and show us our guilt. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We know this, but it's good to be reminded, isn't it? No one is justified by the law. It was only a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It was never intended to save us. 
You understand that, right? We, we understand that, I think we mentioned this on, on question and answer the other night, on Friday night. Uh, there was the old covenant, and there's a new covenant. I mean, the Bible calls a new covenant a better covenant. But the new covenant didn't come around because the old, because God tried really hard and failed over here. That's not what happened. He didn't try and fail. The plan the whole time was this lesser covenant leading to the greater covenant. You understand that, right? So the law was never given to make us righteous and then, oh, it didn't work. So now he has to send Jesus. No, no, no. The law the whole time was never intended to make man righteous. It was intended to show man he's not righteous and point him to the need for a righteous substitute. That he himself cannot do what God requires. That's the purpose of the law. Paul says in Galatians 3.24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we, might, that we might be justified by faith. The law was never meant to save. It was meant to point us. For us to look at it and go, I can never do this. This is an impossible standard. I can't be right with God. Not on my own. If righteousness doesn't come from within us, nor by obedience to the law, how does it come? Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference meaning between the Jew and the Gentile. How is the righteousness of God manifest and witnessed by the law and the prophets? Well, first of all, it was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, wasn't it? What did Jesus teach his disciples? All the things that are written in him in the Psalms and in the prophets concerning himself. When the people questioned Jesus, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they are they which testify of me. What scriptures? The Old Testament. The law and the prophets witnessed that God's righteousness was coming. Out of Zion, to bring everlasting righteousness. How is that manifested to us? Turn to 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 3.16. I'm going to turn to a few more places, so bear with me. 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. I had a great conversation one time with a JW. said, do you believe the Bible? Yes, I do. Every word of it? Yes, I do. I read this verse. God was manifest in the flesh. Well, not that part. <laughs> I said, oh, not, not that part. We, we don't believe in that part. The righteousness of God was manifest in Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Verse 14, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That was the manifestation of the righteousness of God to humanity. He is everything we could not be. The perfect law keeper. You understand that? You and I can't keep the law perfectly. If you offend at one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. But Jesus did. One of my favorite verses to quote for Jesus said, I do always those things that please the Father. Always. 
without fail. He was perfect, sinless in his life in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. Go back to Romans chapter 3 real quick. We'll finish up there. Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God revealed in Christ being manifest by the law and the prophets. Verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through his faith, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God has set forth Christ as the propitiation, that is, the satisfaction of our sin debt, the appeasement of our sins. Another good way to define it is the satisfactory payment for our sins. God has set forth Christ as the satisfactory. What does Isaiah 53 say? He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be what? Satisfied. By his sacrifice, he'll justify many. I reiterate, that day on Calvary, I don't care what you see in the passion of the Christ. God the Father was not sad at Calvary. He was satisfied with the obedience of the Son, with the offering of the Son. He was satisfied. Sin had been atoned for. And Christ's righteousness is declared by faith. The righteousness which we have seen is Christ's righteousness given to us. If you're righteous today, you're righteous because Jesus Christ declared you to be righteous. Not because you've earned it or deserve it or me either. I'm saved today, church, because Christ declared me righteous by faith. He imputed to me his Righteousness. Do you understand that? Let's glory that for just a minute. On the cross, Jesus bore your sin, my sin. What does that mean? That means God treated Jesus on the cross as if he did your sin. Every idle word, every lustful thought, every sin. Everything you've ever done against the law of God, Jesus was punished for it. And in our being declared righteous, God the Father declares us as if we have done the righteousness of the Son. As if we kept the law perfectly. It doesn't mean we're perfect. People, people get mixed up. Christians think they're perfect. No. I'm not perfect today before God because I'm sinless. I'm perfect today positionally because Christ has declared me sinless. Because when the Father looks at me, he sees only the righteousness of Jesus. Just like when the Father looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw my sin and my depravity. That's why Proverbs 5 says, let me read it one more time, the righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way. This righteousness is not earned, it's declared. And perfect means blameless. By the way, our blamelessness is not our own either. 
Romans 4 eight. Blesses the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. God does not count my sin against me because he's already counted it against Jesus Christ. Your sin too, if you're saved. You're blameless today. Thank God for that. Don't thank yourself. There's no room for pride. Kill pride. All that we have, church, we've received. Those who receive Christ's righteousness will be directed by that righteousness. That's why it directs their way, directs their path, it says there. Or directs his way, it says there. The righteousness of the perfect shall direct his way. Imputed righteousness produces in those people who receive it experiential righteousness, which leads them on the right path. The verse in Proverbs, I'll finish up real quickly here. It finishes with, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. The wicked fall by their own wickedness. That which comes from within him will be his destruction. He has no one to blame but himself. The sinner loves to sin. So what he's saying here is those who perish, perish because of the sin that is in them. And those who are righteous are righteous because of a righteousness that is outside of them, given to them. All that's in us is sin and depravity. But that we've received from the grace of God righteousness and blamelessness. Let me summarize this passage this evening. God expects us to be honest and fair in our civil dealings. Don't take more than is necessary and be honest. Be honest. Don't be dishonest to increase your money. Secondly, kill pride before it kills you, and it will kill you. Lofty thoughts of ourselves is a slow poison. Number three, seek righteousness, not riches. Riches are fleeting. Righteousness is eternal. Don't sacrifice the greater thing for the lesser thing. If God gives you riches and wealth, praise the Lord. Never trust in it and share freely. But don't ever turn from righteousness to try to increase your wealth or comfort in this world. It's a lesser thing. And the righteousness that you and I have is from outside of us. It belongs to Christ. All glory be to him. We've received that which we did not deserve. Just as on the cross, Christ received what he did not deserve. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you tonight for this time in the Word. What a a powerful five verses there, Lord, as we talk about things like pride and deceit and honesty, but mostly that that part about righteousness, Lord. What a reminder of the gospel. We have received, we have received so much grace. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I was a great sinner, yet you're a greater Savior. And we thank you. We recognize tonight that what we have is not from us, but from you bought and paid for, earned only by Christ, given to us as a gift. And we're thankful people. Make us a humble people. Make us an obedient people. May we always be thankful. Bless the sick in the church. If we're missing some tonight, Lord, I pray you bless them, raise them back to health this week. And bless us now as we dismiss in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.